Hey everyone, it's Michael. For this episode, I'm very happy to introduce Mike Schoon. Mike is an old friend and colleague of mine and previously a fellow graduate student of Linostrom's at the Workshop in Political Theory and Policy Analysis at Indiana University. Mike is currently an associate professor in the School of Sustainability at Arizona State University and the co-editor-in-chief of the International Journal of the Commons, the leading journal on common pool resource management. We talked about Mike's previous life as an engineer, his transition to academia, and his work on boundary spanning in multiple settings, including transboundary parks in Southern Africa, his work on wild horse management in Arizona, and his own role in the Commons Research Community, as well as the Resilience Alliance. This is the Finding Sustainability Podcast. I mean, I, I kind of knew, Mike, that like it'd be actually hard to start this interview because whenever you and I talk, like it's been, like we've I've we've spent like an hour before talking kind of about nothing. Yeah. And I have a, a tendency to like want to do that now. <laughs> well, well, the flip side of that is that uh, leading up to this, I was thinking that I hope that the podcast would sound more conversational than some stilted uh uh, more interviewee format that we could maintain some of our our triple yeah. our typical rapport. Then those are the ones I've enjoyed the most. I think those are the ones that, in, and for a lot of folks, are the most enjoyable to listen to. As opposed to like, now I ask you this, now I ask you that, now I ask you this. Shake hands. Yeah. I mean, so, but it would be fun to. I mean, so what? We've we've known each other for. 14 years, 13 years. I mean, it's, it's somewhere in there that we've, it's a good long marriage. And it occurred to me that it'd be fun to use this podcast to ask you some questions that involve some personal details that I actually don't know about you. Like your, well, it's, I guess it's professional, like your former career, like what were you doing before in IU? And I, and I think I read recent, I mean, you were an engineer, right, Mike, before yeah. going to Indiana. Yeah. And that's a really interesting space. I mean, on this podcast, it's there's been like these emergent themes, right? And anytime an academic in our field can say emergent, it kind of tickles us a little bit. Um, right. <laughs> it's just one of these words, right? It's like, ooh, I, I just had a deep thought. Um, one of the emergent themes has been like the professional identity and how that's changed and how that's developed for people. One theme has been, including for our, uh, our last guest, um, starting out more in environmental science and then having some kind of come to Jesus moment uh, and realizing that either they liked being around people or they liked talking to people or they realized that people matter, et cetera. And so now they're kind of in this like thick interdisciplinary social ecological soup. Yeah. So I don't want to project that onto you uh, without actually asking you to, to answer this question. Like how did you start, um, becoming an engineer, like how did that develop for you? And then how did you transition from there to thinking, oh no, I want to be thinking about institutions with this Linostrum person? Yeah, so I, I guess to to go back to 
when I was when I was graduating high school, they said, well, you're pretty good at math and science. You should be an engineer. It's a good career. You you have a good salary. You know, there are plenty of jobs. This is this is, you know, the kind of thing you should be striving for. So I got a degree in engineering and it wasn't until a long time after. And I talk with this uh, about this with my students uh, quite a lot, particularly the undergrads, that engineering was was really focused on that. You can get good jobs, you can make some nice money and so on. And it wasn't until I was I was just about to graduate that one of my colleagues said the thing that inspires me most as an engineer is that we can build things that make the world a better place. And I had never heard a single professor, a single advisor, counselor uh, talk in those terms. They talked in terms of of good career. Mm -hmm. And so I worked at, I ended up working as an engineer for, for several years uh, for a small manufacturing firm and uh, enjoyed lots of the design aspects of it and, and enjoyed parts of it. But uh, like many engineers, and this is a typical career path, there's a there's a point several years in where you either decide you want to go into the business side of, of things or you want to stay in engineering and, and, and become an engineering manager or, or just continue the design process. And at that point, I wanted to go into the business side of things. And so I went back to get an MBA. So very t- traditional or standard career path at that point. And when I went back to get an MBA, I thought that I would continue in kind of an engineering environment when I left. And instead, uh, I was motivated to to go into strategy consulting because it was super interesting seeing a variety of different businesses and industries. And there were a lot of a lot of the really driven, motivated people that were around me were, were going in that direction. And that kind of pushed me uh, there as well. So I did that for for uh, four years after receiving my MBA and was working in Atlanta for a boutique strategy firm in retail and apparel, which, as you can see, my wife uh, thinks is hysterical since my fashion sense is probably substandard. Um, <laughs> but but in any event, we were advising those those uh, businesses. But. I guess it shouldn't be too surprising for for people that that know me now is that that wasn't uh, after after some period of time of of this fun game of of trying to uh, build businesses and 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 so on. you realize that it's not really a game that people's lives and livelihoods are at stake and that there are perhaps more meaningful ways to spend my time than uh, focusing on um, driving up corporate profits and so on. So at that point, I was really looking at what I wanted to do next and took the not so traditional uh, career move to jettison from that world and and go back to um, focus on a couple things that were really important to me, and that was education and and environmental or sustainability issues. And so I was looking for programs that had more of an interdisciplinary focus. And at that time, that wasn't a very uh, common uh, opportunity in academia. It was still pretty siloed at the time, although it was changing or beginning to change and came to Indiana in part because of the opportunity to work with Lynn. Um, 
in large part because of the opportunity to work with Lynn. And um, that, so that's how I ended up in academia. And so how did you, um, how was your time at Indiana University? Um, how did you like being a PhD student there? I really loved it. I thought, I thought the first, uh, the transition, of course, I think is really hard going from, uh, well, going from business and then to into a classroom where you're surrounded by people in both of those environments to suddenly being more on your own for the research part was was a big switch for me um yeah uh, you know being a social person that wants to talk and communicate and and be around people to suddenly not uh was was a big change that took some time mm. and what did you end up doing for your dissertation so for my dissertation i was i was interested in in all of my applications and essays uh prior to school I wanted to look at international issues. I wanted to look at how countries uh, work together on various environmental dilemmas. So I thought for a while that I'd look at, at uh, climate change or transboundary pollution and things like this. And just before grad school, I was, um, I was traveling just as a tourist um, and found these, these uh, transboundary protected areas in Southern Africa and it was just fascinating thinking about uh, the movement of people across across borders, the movement of animals, how to manage this at a internationally with with different countries having different laws in place, how to make decisions collectively, and thought this was fascinating. And so I went from these essays on and, and applications on transboundary pollution and and transboundary water and things like this to this project on transboundary conservation. So a lot of the transboundary conservation was happening at the time in Southern Africa and through some a variety of connections was able to start doing some work there uh, between uh, South Africa, Mozambique and Zimbabwe in one of my case studies in a project between South Africa and Botswana and another. And so those were transboundary parks that you were essentially looking at as your case studies? Right. And what were they called? Uh, so one was the Great Limpopo Transfrontier Park, which is mm-hmm. comprised of Kruger National Park in South Africa, um, Limpopo National Park in Mozambique, and Ganarejo National Park in Zimbabwe. Um, and then the other one is the Kalahari Transfrontier Park, which, which is basically the Kalahari Parks of Botswana and, and South Africa. Mm, okay. And Mike, did you... Um... You were you were, you did field work in South Africa and also in neighboring countries, or only in South yeah. Africa? Yeah, so I was working in in all of the the countries involved in the parks. Okay, I ended up conducting, oh gosh, 150, 175 interviews with everyone that was involved in the the transboundary parks. Mm. Um, both those, so looked at those two cases, and the 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 main focus was on how in the Kalahari. Uh, the parks, uh, really the governance was a bottom-up initiative where rangers had been working together and uh, uh, across the border for some time. And this park kind of developed out of that. The other one was uh, a trans-frontier park that was imposed upon the parks by by the, the you know, Mandela and Chisano and Mugabe shook hands and said, yeah, now we have a park. 
go make it happen. You have a few months. Um, and so this top down uh, park. Uh, so it was the bottom up versus top down uh, Got it. that I was that I was really comparing. And did your findings accord with our in like the common sense intuitions we have in our field that bottom up is cozier and more adaptive and nicer and et cetera? Um, yes and no. Um, the the main thing that I tried to emphasize in 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 the the dissertation was that in in many ways that's the that's the uh, common refrain and and it is in in people that talk about these two parks uh, trans frontier parks that the Kalahari is well run and it's a great thing and everything works wonderfully and that the other one's kind of a disaster. And I tried to present a, a more nuanced thing that it really depends on what you're talking about. So in the way the rangers work together, clearly the bottom-up approach works uh, has been working better, in part because they've been working together already. They have more time and experience in doing it. They're the ones that, that were driving the decision for this to happen. But in things that required the national governments to get involved. They were trying to create a border crossing um, into Namibia and that would enter into the park. And it was really difficult because the national government really didn't care. They weren't involved. This mm -hmm. wasn't something that they wanted to engage in. By contrast, the other park had already had the support of the national governments. So while they were struggling with how do their rangers work together, and things that were happening on the ground and how to work with local communities and so on. They uh, had a border crossing established within the park. Um, okay. And, and so, so they were really successful at doing things that required the national level of governments to, to engage and work together. I mean, it reminds me of this issue of like self-selection bias where you have a, you know, if you give a treatment, you offer a treatment to folks and people self-select into it. The folks that frequently do that are the ones that are already prepared to avail themselves of that treatment. Yeah. So there's this idea that, okay, the bottom-up worked in part because people are already, you would tend to see a bottom-up initiative in places potentially where people are already predisposed and have the social capital to make that thing happen. Right. Right. Hmm. How was that experience for you? I, I'm not sure if you had previous experience in that region before, you done your field work there, but I'm 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 always interested in how it is for people when they go to a new place for the first time. How that was for them personally to integrate into that new social context, and in this particular case, multiple different social contexts, and to be thrown in to this new, completely cultural situation, and also have the weight of having to do work that's going to go towards your personal education and something which you're going to try to achieve in the long run. Uh, how did that weigh on you? How did that influence you going forward? Yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a, a great question. Um, it shouldn't come as a surprise to, to anyone that's, uh, that's done work in, in these types of settings. But when I, when I got there, I was really interested and concerned with one of the big challenges that they were facing. And that was, how to work with local communities. So at the time, South Africa was in the process of settling land claims um, with Kruger Park and, and people that had been evicted from, from their historic land. So they were trying to settle these land claims. Um, at the same time, Mozambique was resettling people out of the park, uh, Zimbabwe, uh, 
the policies changed regularly and and was was just a, a mess as might be uh, expected. And I was really interested in this relationship with local communities. And it what didn't take too long into my field work uh, before I realized that as a white privileged American who frankly knew nothing about the local context and had never been in these situations, um, that some of the work that I thought that I would be doing engaging with local communities probably wasn't the best use of my time. And I had to really reflect on what it was that I was trying to do and what it was that I had to offer. And at the time I said, well, I do have all this training in governance and institutional analysis that I can look at how the parks are actually being run and the decisions, you know, from the Ministry of Environment on down, how they're they're working together. And that might be a better use of my time than pretending that I can immerse myself into uh, local communities and and make any progress there. Pretty simple, uh, you know, to to uh, to look back at that now, but at the time, this was uh, this personally was was a, a big step. Did you take any of those lessons when you're looking to design future studies that you wanted to go back to work more with communities, but that that took more time to try to learn and become embedded in the cultural context versus those studies, which would more look at that maybe wider institutional context? Yeah. So when I um, following my PhD, I took a postdoc at Arizona State University, and I was doing similar projects there in part with some work with uh, Professor Abigail York, who was also an IU grad and was also uh, newly hired as a professor at ASU. And her work was mostly at the at the local level. So I'd been looking at these international uh, or frontier um, projects, and she was looking at local context and you know tenure, uh, land tenure uh, differences, and so on. And but we started working together um, in southern Arizona, and we spent a spent a, a summer doing field work in the southeast corner of Arizona along the border, looking at a, a lot of collaboratives there. And at the time, there were two two things struck me in terms of working with the local community. One was that that both Abby and I came from uh, rural and farming backgrounds um, before before academia, and it enabled us to work, I think, uh, a lot better with a lot of the ranching communities and, and others in in southern Arizona, which which really helped us. Um, we we could talk to them about the challenges that they faced and, and I think understood it at a personal level at the same time, going back to uh, the challenges that I had in the, in the uh, local communities in Southern Africa, one of the projects that I was really interested in was this issue of sovereignty. And in the trans frontier parks, there were issues of sovereignty in terms of who can make decisions and how are decisions made across the, the, the border and I was interested in this issue of sovereignty as it's more nuanced in Arizona with tribal rights. And so I wanted to do some work with some of the tribes that were bordering on national forests, national parks, and how they were negotiating some of these same things. But it got back to the same issue where that project never took off in part because I didn't have the relationships or the, uh, or the, the, uh, the, yeah, the, the, the relationships in the in the tribes to, to do this kind of work. 
I mean, that reminds me of a challenge that I feel like we, I mean, that I've certainly felt in my career is for a while, I kind of bopped around across several, several different field sites. And it's, it's, you just really need to invest an awful lot in a particular field site to make things happen there. And I think that can get undervalued. I mean, sometimes I think the anthropologists really have it right. It's like, you should go spend like one to two years in a place. And then maybe you just keep on going back to that place for a very long time because there's just there's real costs in moving yeah from one side to the other and it's the same kind of cost that you incur if you move yourself right like we celebrate mobility in our in our culture those of us who are fortunate enough to have mobility but there's real social costs to doing that in terms of lost social capital and it happens that we have the same issue with in our own work because there's social scientists that want to understand social systems yeah, we end up talking about the importance of local knowledge as we bounce and flit around from place to place to place in our own work. It's kind of silly. It's kind of bizarre. And, we, and like we I was interested in your your work in Arizona for that reason, Mike, is um, just I've, I've often wondered, like, why don't we do more local work? Like I haven't done a lot of local work since coming to Dartmouth and I was on. But I bike a lot through the landscape, which is a, a particular way of getting to know a landscape. But it's also quite limited. Like I don't learn a lot about the social landscape as I'm going through these spaces that are actually quite different than mine. And I was kind of undersensitized to that until I was biking with a buddy of mine. And he was just like, oh, that's where like that family was like 50 years ago. That's where like they had a fight, you know, and that church is there because of this. And I was like, holy crap, right? All of this like local, there's a whole social landscape that I'm illiterate about in the place that I call home. And that's like, that should be weird to a human being. Yeah. That's how I felt about it. I mean, it sounds judgmental, but like that's how I felt about my lack of fit with my own area where I call home because of that dynamic. Yeah. And and then yeah, I write we all like write papers as you said. It's like, oh, local context matters, traditional knowledge matters, but we underdevelop those resources in ourselves a lot of the time. Yeah, I wonder if we're getting there a little bit more in the sustainability science realm. It seems to be that quite a few of those projects are born in the places where people are either at the university or they have a, a deep knowledge of because of that need for a, a longer temporal perspective and also that local deep knowledge which you can only get from living somewhere or growing up in that area. Um, yeah, I think we need more of it. And there's definitely a lack of these longer term studies. I mean, more than five, more than 10 years, 20 years, 30 years studies, which we ha- we don't really have in our field. There's a lot of snapshot analyses, which I think we can really benefit from. Yeah. What is, what is resilience and what is sustainability when you have a 18 month study? Um, I'm not sure that we've, we've, we're able to diagnose whether something is, is truly resilient when we have such a short, short uh, lens lens on a a case. So yeah, Mike, you mentioned your postdoc at ASU. After that, you became a professor at Arizona state university in Tempe. Um, I think to some outsiders, ASU looks a little bewildering because it's just so huge. And in the environmental sector, there's, it seems like, you know, every corner you turn, there's like a new school of sustainable something. So could you like give us a little picture of that landscape and where you fit into it now as a professor there? Sure. So, so AS, uh, the school of sustainability started at ASU, I think the, the few months right before I arrived. Um, and then I joined the, the school itself four years later um, and, and have been there ever since. Um, 
the school was was initially set up um, as its own college as well. So so within uh, ASU and ASU is one of, I should I think it's worth mentioning is one of the uh, largest, if not the largest uh, university in the U.S. right now uh, with 100,000 plus students. Whoa. And many of those are, are online. There's there's a huge online presence as well. And most of our degree programs have an online version. Like in normal times. In normal times, right. Yeah, so okay. which made the transition uh, during this time of COVID um, a little bit less painful, um, perhaps. But um, so the school itself was was established as its own college in part because it was meant to be something that spanned the entire university and and that sustainability would be embedded in the practices across the school, both in terms of the research we do. All students t- take an intro sustainability course as freshmen and and but also the the sustainability practices of the university. Um, this past year, um, and and we're rolling it out now. It's now become part of a um, of a new college of global futures, and there are three schools within that. Uh, the school of sustainability is is the biggest, um, although we're still quite quite small for for a university the size of ASU. But also, there's a school of future of innovation and society, which has been around for for several years now. Um, and builds on on the work of Dan Sarowitz and Dave Gustin and others who who and Clark Miller who helped found that school, and then we have a brand new school that's just starting now um, that builds on ASU's partnership with Santa Fe Institute, and that's a school of complex adaptive systems uh, with graduate programs to start I think either in the spring or next fall. Wow! Now we're part of this new um, new entity, and it's all. It's all a, a learning process right now. Sure, yeah. Is, is the the innovation and in society school is that um, related? I, I I didn't immediately recognize the names you mentioned. Is that related to the literature on like transition management, technical like technical innovation, that kind of stuff? Um, there's some of that. There's a lot of science, uh, philosophy of science, science technology, science. Okay. Policy. Okay, so like. STS stuff. Yeah. Some of it. yeah. Okay. I'm, yeah, that I'm stuff's probably, really interesting. I'm probably underselling what, what they do, given just based on my lack of own knowledge about what, what else is going on in that school. But sure. Okay. Stuff. So as you've stayed uh, at Tempe, um, have you stayed engaged in, in local research or how has that developed for you? Yeah. So um, now I have a lab and, and my students are all, most of my students that are in the lab are engaged in, in local projects. All of these projects are really looking at collaboration and how do people collaborate to address some environmental dilemma or sustainability dilemma that they're facing. So there were the projects that Abby and I uh, were looking at around grazing and fire management and water management and biodiversity conservation. And so some of our students are looking back at some of those cases. Other students are continuing to find other examples or cases of this um, throughout the state. Um, some are looking elsewhere, um, but but most of the students are looking with, within the state. Um, most recently, a few years ago, um, I was asked by the 
U.S. Forest Service to convene a working group on on wild horse management. So they wanted to create a collaborative uh, group. It was facilitated by Southwest Decision Resources, which is a skilled um, and experienced um, uh, environmental facilitator mediator group. So there were there were three people from that group and myself who kind of were the 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 management facilitation convening of this working group. The Forest Service, Arizona Game and Fish, and Arizona Department of Agriculture were the cooperating agencies that were involved, but they were not, they did not have formal seats within the collaborative. The collaborative was comprised of individuals from the different interest groups that were involved in, or that were concerned with the management of wild horses, ranchers, um, environmental groups, and wildlife advocates, um, wild horse advocates. And so we brought uh, these people all together through a series of, of interviews to find out people that were willing to actually um, engage in, in, in dialogue and, and, and compromise and, and try to formulate a management plan for the Forest Service. Um, and then the Forest Service then took that and crafted their own management plan based on that. So this process took place over about a year and a half and ended about uh, just over a year ago. Um, and the Forest Service is now working on taking that through the NEPA process and all of that. Hmm. But that was, um, for me, that was very, um, that was very meaningful work. I learned a lot. Um, my, my students often asked, well, how did you gain experience in, in, in convening so that you could do something like this? And I said, well, um, the same way that I did, uh, my training uh, for teaching, I never learned. No one ever taught me. I just, um, they said, here's your classroom, go teach. Um, and the same thing with this, with this working group, it was the type of things that I'd been studying, but never engaged in as a, as a practitioner. Um, so that was, yeah. Really- I mean, it's really interesting. I feel like that's a, a topic that comes up a lot in this kind of, right. Let's call it transdisciplinary work is the difference between like thinking and doing and the relationship between them. I mean, I have felt that similarly in leading the the South Africa foreign study program or the Southern Africa, along with a colleague of mine, is that it's been very much involved, like living out a lot of the ideas that we all write about. So did you, how did you experience Mike, the relationship between like the intellectualization of these ideas and like they're like you actually implementing them? Were you aware of like theory as you were like bopping around a room and how reflexive were we able to be like after doing some of this stuff about, Oh, like how much did your own personal experiences then inform your understanding of, of the theory? Yeah. So I think it helped quite a lot, not, um, you know, maybe not a one-to-one translation, although there are a few points where we talked a lot about the need for the plan to have an adaptive management component. And we said, so how would you put this into practice? And, and what are the decision points at which we would, uh, we would evaluate, um, how things are going and what kind of decisions would we, would we make based on, on that? Um, so that was coming out of, you know, formal training and, and, and research. But most of it was, uh, I mean, I was struck in what I think is shaping my research is I was struck by the amount of 
of effort in just in terms of management of personality and and the the building social rapport i mean we can talk you know the literature talks about the value of social capital and building trust and these kinds of things and those are all absolutely absolutely true but the literature doesn't really talk about it beyond you know this is really hard and takes time you know that's that's the end of the that section on on social capital or on building trust and really that's what we did was spend all of our time engaged in activities and working together to try to build those things mm. you know, on the agenda. It does not say, you know, 12 to one thirty build trust exercise, right? Work um, hard at it. Yeah. But, but we're doing things like, um, like taking field visits and spending time in, in, in the landscape where, where uh, the horses were and, having a horse advocate talk about um, about what they see and, and what they've learned about the, the herds and so on. And then having a rangeland ecologist talk about what's going on in the landscape and does this look healthy or not? You know, the uh, as a non-ecologist, I see the landscape and there's some grass and some trees and I couldn't tell you if it was healthy or not, um, but they could, could uh, inform us about that. And so that was... A wonderful learning experience, but also those kinds of activities, I think, really went a long ways towards building up relationships with within the group. Yeah, I wanted to follow up mm. on that. <clears throat> Excuse me, that how much of that process is actually about those what you might say informal institutions, like building the trust, building and the role of personalities within those groups. Uh, I don't think we focus too much on that, at least in the commons collective action space the role of individual people and what their life histories are and what their just tendencies, their interpersonal capacity for building, for building relationships and trust and, and social capital. And I like what you said, and I, I read about social capital and I, I read something a while back that summed it up nicely that social cap, there's a big difference between social capital as a means of analysis versus social capital as a policy recommendation. It's a huge gap because we don't know that much about how it's actually built in those little nuances and I'm wondering when, when I when you mentioned that you were building those, you got invited to consult. I immediately thought, oh, putting together formal rules: how many people should be on there, how often we should meet, how much we should, who gets voting powers, uh, those more formal things. And it seems that almost the entire process, which was interesting, uh, was the informal ones. Do you think like, are we missing something there? Well, so I, I mean, I I haven't. Um, haven't thought about this too much, but I mean, one thing that, that strikes me looking back and, and thinking about this based on, on what we're talking about now is that there were a number of formal rules that we put in place that I think went a long way towards facilitating or enabling the condition or creating the conditions to, to build this uh, trust. So, uh, there was uh, there was a particular um, person that was putting a lot of kind of pseudoscience out to the group. I mean, imagine this in a you know in on a different issue in a time of COVID. You know, masks don't help, or this or that, or um, and here's a doctor that says so. And we were seeing a lot of this with you know 
horses will naturally govern their own reproductive rate uh, when they see their ecological conditions uh, changing. Well, that that's not the case. But, you know, there was a scientific study that advocacy groups, horse advocacy groups were were relying on. But we had set up set some policies in place that people were allowed to bring uh, research or reports or whatever to the group, but the group would then uh, discuss and say whether or not this was something that we were going to base decisions on. Um, and so the group could jettison things that seemed to be particularly partisan or or not not at the cutting edge of science or or had been refuted or whatever. Um, and so I think that helped. It created some hard feelings at times when somebody said, hey, here's something that says this and everyone else says, uh, this just doesn't match with what what mm-hmm. else we're seeing. Um, but also other things where um, there were a few times where the vitriol uh, was getting quite heated back and forth. And we had discussed um, how we were going to handle relationships within the group and what was acceptable behavior and what wasn't. And I mean, a lot of these were common sense, but because we had formalized this, um, in those cases, after the, well, during the meeting, it was usually, it was halted, sometimes not as quickly as we, we should have, you know, going back with hindsight or looking back with hindsight. But usually those, those meetings were followed, followed up with me making calls as convener to the various people that were, were, were um, arguing uh, individually and saying, hey, as a group, we had decided that this was the behavior that was going to be acceptable in the group and what wasn't. And for the most part, uh, the people would respond by saying, you're right. I, I, I crossed the line. I shouldn't have done that. But we, I think it helped to have these formal, formalized uh, rules in place. Um, hmm. And so there, there are some links between the formal and informal that um, I, sh- I should probably think about a little bit more. <laughs> there was another thing you said in there that was just like you did with teaching that you didn't know how to do it. You just started and you learned. And I'm wondering with your experience with maybe in your classes or at ASU, do you get the impression that students are prepared for situations where they don't know what to do? Or are we, are we teaching students to that they're going to get the knowledge they need and that they're going to go into a situation outside of the university and be prepared rather than preparing them to deal with uncertainties and to rely on maybe partial knowledge or not even enough knowledge to go and try to make reasonable decisions. That's a, that's a a really good question. I think that the, I, the undergrad classes that I've been teaching, I was teaching a, um, biodiversity conservation class, but the two main undergrad classes that I've been teaching for quite some time, one was on uh, policy and governance, so a lot of institutions and 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 so on. Um, and that one, there's some some formal there there's some literature that they need to know, some things that they need to learn. Um, you know what the what the policy process is like, and and so so we, you know, I'm teaching uh, material on the systems thinking class, the other undergraduate class that I have. A lot of the materials. Um, the, the actual material isn't so difficult, right? I mean, uh, Mike brought up, uh, emergence earlier, you know, we can, we can share a definition of what emergence means. And, you know, if you're unfamiliar with this, I can teach it to you in 30 seconds. Right. And 
but but that's that's not the hard part. The hard part is thinking about the world around us and how do we um, identify that and what does it mean? And and so there was a lot of the systems thinking class is trying to put it into practice. And we spend a lot of time in small groups. That's really uh, challenging right now uh, since we're not able to break out so easily um, in in class this semester. Um, but we're I'm spending a lot of time and, and I from from day one of the class, I say, look, the material is not hard in here. You can get the material quite quickly. What's hard is how do we apply this and use it in in our work? And if we get that, that requires us to talk, to provide examples. So that class is filled with um, me coming in and saying, hey, this is what I heard on the radio today. Let's think about how this on, on the way to work or this is what I read or. I saw this uh, post or this, this uh, I got this email, uh, let's talk about this. Or do you have other examples of, of this? And the more we do that, the, the students that really buy in, I think end up advancing quite a lot. The ones that just learn the definitions, I think that um, it's the most of the class is lost on them. I mean, it sounds like it's reinforcing the, the argument for active experiential learning that's popular to talk about, but harder to implement. Yeah. And, and it's hard to know if we're actually doing a good job at, at teaching it. Um, how do you, how do you self-assess and about, I mean, I get student evaluations, but. No, it's real hard. I mean, we've been trying again to do that for our foreign study program in Southern Africa. It's like, how do you measure whether or not we've increased students' abilities to deal with uncertainty, ambiguity, and make multiple connections about a case. Right. Yeah, from my own student, from being a student, thinking back what I've learned, sometimes I don't recognize that something clicked until many years later, that that was a foundational thing that I learned, and that's really difficult to assess. You'd, almost have, you'd have to survey alumni. Right. And then, and then you find out that the, the takeaways uh, that really stuck with you are mm-hmm. one anecdote, right? Yep. You know, five years later, that anecdote still kind of resonates exactly. with Exactly. I you. remember in my, yeah. my master's program in particular, many, many people were very critical of how practical the knowledge was that they learned. It was much more theoretical, sustainability-oriented learning. But now looking back on it, there was a lot of foundational concepts and ideas which I now draw upon and which set the seeds for other things which I think about now. But that took many years to kind of turn that my perspective on the program around. Yeah, I remember at one point in in my grad program talking to to one of one of my committee members and saying I had just gone off to one of my first uh, big academic conferences and I came back and and I was um, worried because a lot of the other young scholars that I was interacting with at this conference, they seemed to be experts on uh, deforestation and this problem and that problem and this other problem. And they, and I, I felt like I really didn't have a grasp of a lot of the, the kind of topical applications of, of what we were studying. And this committee member said, that's really easy. You want to learn about uh, desertification, go grab a National Geographic and read an article. Like this is not, that's not the hard part. The hard part is the, 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 
the theory that's grounding how you approach your studies, the the concepts that that you're basing it on, and that's what we're trying to drive into you. So don't worry if you don't know about deforestation in Brazil. You can learn about that pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. and I, and that was really helpful for me, and I and I try to try to use that with my my grad students as well. So, Mike, to go back to your work on the horse management project. I mean, one of speaking of concepts, one of my favorite concepts over the last couple of years is, has been this idea of a boundary actor or a boundary spanner. Um, I just, I, I feel like they're in any system, some of the most important actors. Did you experience yourself as being that kind of actor in this situation? I think so. Um, you know, similar to the way I described some of the cases in Southern Arizona, I hope that my own background made them not think that I was some egghead out of academia, but that was somebody that could relate to, to the challenges and frustrations that they were all facing. I had a grad student, a a PhD student who's using this as a, a large portion of her dissertation. And uh, she's an interesting person as well. Her her husband is a is a Arizona farmer and is a big hunter and has a lot of ties with with Arizona game and fish and and really related to a lot of the the ranching community. But she's also a big um, uh, horse advocate and horse lover and really related to the other community. The two were in contrast has a master's in conservation biology and also in, um, oh, I think like equine science or something. So she's been on kind of both sides of, or multiple sides of this issue. And I think it really helped a lot that uh, for her work, she was, she was, uh, you know, talking with and commiserating with and, and sharing with people from all different angles of this. And they, I think they were quite open and happy to have her around that they felt like she was always a, 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 a listening ear um, mm. that, that understood the, their issues. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've become more interested in also the relationship between like emotional intelligence and the identity of being a social scientist. Cause it feels under formalized in our education. Like I wasn't taught to be emotionally intelligent during my PhD, but arguably, arguably it's quite important for anyone, but you just mentioned the idea that people wanted to talk to her because she seemed like she wanted to listen. Well, if someone asks me like, how do I do a good interview? If you can convince the other person that you care about what they're saying and that you're listening. And the best way to do that is to care about what they're saying and to listen. Yeah. Then things, a lot of other stuff is going to take care of itself actually. Yeah. I, I think initially I was surprised both in my own work and that as, as a student and then afterwards and seeing my students do this, uh, I was, I was for a long time, I was surprised at the willingness for people to talk about whatever it is we were studying. But now the more I think about it, I just think it's people do want to talk about what they do and they want people to validate that what they do is important. And so Mm. if you're asking somebody about, their livelihood or why they do particular things, or can you show me how you do this or why you do this or teach me this? People are, of course, they're quite open to this. You know, 
most of us in our everyday lives don't have people asking about this. And it's validating. It is. It's validating. And it goes beyond the, well, how was your day? Um, It's asking them about what they do. I think it really sells short the value of qualitative work because we don't have a formal means of analyzing emotion and those interpersonal aspects of an interview where the standard protocol is to take all of that away into a transcript and then to, to just basically analyze the words that were said without any voice tone, without any understanding of the eye contact that was made, the facial expressions when they told you how fast they were talking, what they're, whether they were crying or whether they're excited when they said those words or not. And I'd be interested in anyone who has yeah. uh, explored ways to better incorporate that into formal analysis so that we can better show the value of, and the different types of interviews that really exist besides just the, the way we ask questions. I mean, that reminds me of, we were interviewing Phil Loring, who leads the Coastal Roots Project, and he he referred to someone else who referred to this type of of content as the warm data, which I really liked. It's it's not the cold, hard facts in, in as many quotes as you please, right? But it's the warm affect that that, of course, is tremendously important to humans because we actually perceive all that data. Yeah, I, it, it reminds me of a of a a story that Tanya Hayes, um, who's at, at at Portland, Seattle, Seattle, Seattle university. Yeah. Um, in Tanya's uh, PhD work, she was conducting some interviews and she wanted to know, um, how people would respond to a particular situation. And she was just getting these really kind of, uh, not so insightful answers. And she said, well, what would happen if somebody did this? And they'd be like, oh, I don't know. And, and that was all the further. And she was really frustrated. And so she started telling this story. And the story was about her friend, Miguel. And Miguel did this and Miguel did that. And, um, and then w- she started asking them, well, when Miguel did that, how, you know, what do you think of this? And it was, it was asking the, the same questions, but it was putting it into this bigger story. Um, and she was getting these tremendous, Miguel is crazy and I can't believe he would do that. And that really offends me. And these huge stories and people were coming up weeks later and saying, I was thinking about what Miguel said. And I just thought this was such a fascinating uh, wow. uh, and, and super insightful, uh, you know, methodological approach, right? That all she was doing was creating a, uh, an environment in which people could respond and they just weren't getting these kind of dry academic questions. But when they heard about this guy that was acting in inappropriate ways in their community, they really went into it. Yeah. Give someone a story and a character, right? And they'll, they'll engage with you. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so Mike, going back to you, I'm interested in, well, so you play this particular role in this project, which I think is really interesting. I'm also really interested in the role you've played in these two academic communities that are also my primary academic communities. So it's the commons community and the resilience community. I had wanted to ask you when you were playing this facilitating role, what was it about you that you felt was working well or not? Cause we're always, I have this, um, 
someone told me a long time ago that there's a part of our own psyche that kind of acts as the watcher that's always watching what we're doing right and that's the part that can be reflexive later on and say okay mike like this you know this went well that this didn't and, and and that's why because i've i've admired you for a long time and that you seem to be very effective at building and being a strong part of academic communities and so i and and so when i heard about this other project with the horses i'm like well that makes sense that mike would be able to do that reasonably well because there's something about him where he's able to you have a very high reasonableness quotient and you're also engaging and so i'm interested in Again, kind of talking about you, but also doing that by exploring this idea of of your ability of, of being this boundary actor, bringing different groups together. Um, are there any commonalities between your experiences in this particular project and talking to maybe very different groups and the work you've done to develop the Commons community and the Resilience Alliance community? Well, thanks for thanks for that. That's very uh, flattering. Um, I've been wanting to say it for a long time, Mike. So I just I saved it for today. Well, thank you. Um, I mean, I think well, there's a there's a number of things that I think about. That one is that in the same way, I think uh, the two of you are really um, doing a lot of of non traditional academic work, which I think is really interesting and is is much more beneficial than than uh, yet an, another article, frankly. And I think that um, I've also looked for opportunities to to build my academic career around things that are are sometimes non-traditional in terms of just publishing more uh, because I'm not always sure about the impact of that. It doesn't mean I don't publish. I try to publish regularly and in good journals and, and all of those kinds of things like all of us do and hope that people like it and cite it and, and benefit from it. But I've, I've increasing, increasingly I've found that the work that I really enjoy in academic communities is trying to build a stronger sense of community. And, and frankly, a lot of the, the research that I've done has been as much in support of, of those communities and seeing this, this collective response that's far better than, than anything I would have done as an individual or in you know little collaborations with, with one other person or something like that. Instead, these these broader communities that are engaging as as individuals in, in part of a bigger project, and then as bigger projects that that emerge from this collective effort, I think it's been been wonderful. And and my first experience with that was was through the Resilience Alliance. Um, I, I felt just so fortunate to be uh, to learn from senior scholars in that group as a, as a, as a early career, you know, uh, grad student, and then, then post-grad working in that, and then the opportunity to work with other, um, colleagues at a similar career stage to, to build something and do our, some of our own stuff, um, within the RA was, was, was hugely influential in, in the, some of the career, paths that I've taken. 
Hmm. Um, and similar in the in the the uh, commons community, I was uh, at a fairly early stage and, in my career and had the opportunity to join the International Journal of the Commons as a as a co-editor in chief with with our good friend uh, Frank von Lerhoven. And there were a number of senior scholars whose advice was, don't do this. You need to focus on publishing more. You need to get on a tenure track position. You need to uh, gain tenure. And then you can think about doing these kinds of things. And I just thought, well, this, this is the core of my community. And it's working with a good friend. And I'm not sure when this opportunity will arise again. I, I really... I'm, I'm just going to do it anyway. Uh, and I'm so glad that I did. It really opened my eyes to the editorial process, the review process, uh, broadened my, my view of, of our, of, of our, of the field in ways that I don't think would have been too easy if I hadn't done that. Um, yeah. How did that journal actually start, Mike? Like, whose decision was it? How how much was Lynn involved in that? So, I mean, it was in large part Lynn's decision. So, um, IASC did not have a journal at the time, and Lynn um, and others. That's the, that were, sorry, that's the International Association for the Study of the Commons. Yeah, and yeah. Eleanor Eleanor Ostrom was the founder, I think, of the of the association and then um was one of the founder basically founders of the journal i don't think her name shows up formally on any of the the things other than that she was one of the officers in the in iasc um but she selected frank one of her students and uh and others to to start this off and and so they did uh 14 years ago wow um, what would you say have been some of the main lessons you've learned in leading that journal? I mean, you, you mentioned that it, it opened your eyes to the review process, some of these, you know, how the sausage is made, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, so we had a lot of discussions uh, philosophically in terms of what kind of journal we wanted. It's open access. We wanted a lot of our, um, a lot of our community, both as researchers, as practitioners, and and frankly, as places that that are often studied, are in developing contexts, and we wanted the journal to be open access so these people could could read it without paywalls in the way and things like that. Um, this is a big challenge in the in the publishing community because there's a lot of open access journals that are, of course. Uh, viewed as predatory and that are open access because you can fall into a pay for publication type of, of format. And I know there's a lot of discussions about various journals that, that are like that. Um, and so we continue to push uh, against that, that we're clearly not predatory and that we're trying to conduct uh, high-end scholarship and do it in a way that's that's affordable for for uh, researchers, but also makes it open for the people that we want to be seeing seeing what we do. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it kind of fits the philosophy of the commons, right? Exactly, and 
and you know we have waivers for for people that that can't afford to publish and we try to try to support that um and it's a it's a challenge and one of the things that has has also been um challenging for us as a journalist that we try to focus on and support developing country scholarship and that often requires uh a lighter touch in the editorial process and, and in the review process that uh, people whose educational backgrounds may be different from ours, that they have um, the support to succeed and that this, mm. is, this is important to us. I would be interested to know a little bit because the journal has been now 14 years and since then much longer than I've been in academia. And I would be interested in what, what's your perspective on how the publishing space generally has evolved into the different models. Some might even call that there's the the big cartels out there, the four big publishers, uh, and then you have some new, more open access, more predatory kind of models. And for, I have, I feel like it's getting more difficult to choose where to publish. There's more and more journals, yet I feel like the choice is more difficult. And where do, where do you think it's changed? And do you think it's become become more difficult for yourself to choose where you would put your papers that you're looking to publish out there and for young scholars? I mean, what are some of those criteria you would, you would look for in a journal? Yeah. When I was in grad school, I kept thinking of the various journals that, that I wanted to publish in that were, that were important in, in the various fields that I was trying to establish myself in. And since then, now, you know, there's so many discussions about people that say, I'm not going to review or I won't publish in, you know, these journals by the, by the, you know, corporate entities. Um, they're, they're uh, built on the, on the free labor of academics for reviewing and writing and everything else. And, and they're making huge profits. I don't want to engage in that. And that's fine. And then you have the people that say, well, uh, all of these predatory journals we need to avoid and and can't have anything to do with as well. And that really narrows down uh, to not that many journals where you, where you'd be willing to to publish. I'm still involved in um, uh, I'm on the editorial board for Society and Natural Resources, which is is um, with uh, Taylor and Francis and and. But, but I think about that a lot. Should I be in, engaged in this activity or is this something that I don't want to uh, be a part of? And likewise with MDPI and some of the other, uh, other uh, open access journals that have more of a predatory uh, focus. Um, I don't know. There's just not that many in between. I, um, I really like Ecology and Society, which is affiliated with the Resilience Alliance. That's a big part of my community. And then, of course, the... Uh, International Journal of the Commons, uh, who I think both are open access and are trying to be in this middle space. Um, that's not that's not too big, but it would be nice to have more options than just a few. Um, it's so, Mike. Do you actually think we need more journals in that middle space, like more valid open access journals? Um, I don't know if more journals is is the right option. There's sure. so many out there already. Um, but I don't know. It's these, the, the, the two ends of the spectrum, neither is too desirable. 
Right. I really see a link between building academic community and people being educated about what build what academic community is or could be. And I see that with, with IJC and with ecology and society, I think people identify, they see that it's a community of folks. It doesn't have any malevolent or other motives besides seemingly of, of scholarship. Uh, and they seem to both be open access. And it, it seems that there's a, a big opportunity for more community driven journals. I know there's a ton out there more than I, than that I'm familiar with, yeah. but I think those are two good examples. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, this idea of building community, I think, is really powerful and important. I mean, I, we've agreed several times that a lot of the reasons why we're trying to do this podcast, the way we're doing it, is to build community. Because you, you know, you, you don't feel as con- as connected to someone when you read their PDF as if you can kind of hear them talk to someone else and actually open up a little bit. Um, I've actually had a few people tell us they were surprised at how I think they used the word vulnerable. You know, but you could also use the word open that we've been on some of these and just start talking. This is what I think. This is what I'm uncertain about because you don't you don't really get that more human side of folks in the more formal parts of academia. I, I mean, this is this has always been the 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 more uh, productive academic meetings that I've gone to are, are very much in that in that format, either smaller workshops where there's 20 or 50 people, something like this around a, a, a fairly uh, contained set of ideas or, or projects um, have always seemed much more uh, compelling to me and time to spend just talking and sharing ideas. And, and as opposed to a 10,000 person meeting um, that's just kind of overwhelming and you end up uh, not engaging in, in some of these kind of side conversations that end up being the most fruitful. Yeah. I mean, that's what I think the Resilience Alliance for a long time did so well. I mean, some of my formative academic experiences were at these meetings, like the one you talked about. And that just got, that impacted me. It still impacts me. It still like makes me happy to think about those initial meetings when I met Jacopo and, you know, you could go on the list of characters and it just made you, it made me feel like there was a community that I belonged to. Yeah. Right. And it just turns out that for a human, that's like kind of the most important thing. Right. But we don't, we don't think about the things that really sustain us a lot of the time when we're worried about all of these metrics that we get kind of lost in. And I think can drive a lot of our anxieties and we forget like, oh, like how do I actually reattach to my community? Which of course is potentially harder, not potentially, it's like harder now. Um, which is another reason why I like the, well, here's a nice segue to the, to your PEX webinars. Like, I think we need to be thinking about like how we share information and continue to kind of build community uh, digitally. So actually it'd be interesting to hear about how that project got started. I mean, I think first it'd be helpful for you to, you know, tell people what PEX actually is and it's this working group structure they have and then how you decided to start these webinars Sure. So uh, PEX's program for on ecosystem change and society, it's a uh, it's a group within the Future Earth constellation of projects and programs. And within PEX, they had calls out when they were first getting started. Gosh, I don't know how long ago that was, six, eight years ago or something like that. They 
um, had a request. And, and a lot of this was coming out of people that w- had been a part of the uh, resilience community. And they, they put out this call and, and with somebody that, that was in the Young Scholars Group of the Resilience Alliance, uh, Georgina Kundal, we were talking about how we were interested in collaboration as something to study and had been looking at these collaboratives in, in my case, in Arizona and in her case, in South Africa. And we wanted to see what the commonalities were across our cases. Is, are, are her findings applicable uh, in my cases and vice versa? And so the more we started talking about it, we said, well, what if we apply to PECS and start talking to other people that are doing this kind of work in other places? And so now we have, oh gosh, probably around 30 people in our little working group within PECS uh, on collaborative governance in, I don't know, 15, 18 different countries around the globe that are all engaged in similar um, research on collaboration around some kind of environmental dilemma. And so a lot of our work now is about how do we standardize and how do we uh, how can we make comparisons in these different places? I know something near and dear to to you all. Um, so that's that's how the, the the working group started. The webinars then grew out of um, a desire. Again, this is a desire to build community. We were able to have meetings um, with with the working group um, before you know, in conjunction with the the Pex Pex has a has a regular conference or has had in the past a regular conference. And so we'd have a, a workshop affiliated with that for, for a couple of days that would en- enable us to get together. And then we did, had a couple other one-off meetings if somebody had funding to help bring a group together. And again, it was to further our, our, our kind of shared research goals, but really it was, it was also about just building this sense of community across this group. And we were looking for other uh, mediums to to do this and to have more regularized contact with each other and and stay engaged. So you know it's very difficult for for this type of community if you're meeting every other year or something or every eighteen months. And so last oh about this time last year we started talking about shouldn't could we do a webinar where we have people introduce various methodological approaches to uh, to how they're conducting this kind of research. And we didn't really know how that was going to turn out. And so now we've had roughly a, a webinar every month for the last year. And it's been, it's been really nice. I've been um, um, happily surprised at, at that people regularly tune in and that people go watch the, the recordings later on and, um, that people seem to enjoy having this this outlet that's somewhat different from the, from their their regular. And then, of course, in March, uh, COVID hit, and everyone's like, "There's this new technology called Zoom," and and we were like, "Well, we've been doing this for for a while now, and having these regular um, sessions." And and so this was had, has been really uh, just a continuation of of what we were doing. Okay, and so you're planning on sticking with the kind of monthly schedule it sounds like yeah we hope to continue with that we're currently planning a a workshop for towards the end of the year where we bring everyone together and we're not sure 
about format and structure and how all that's going to work. You know, are there going to be recordings of things? Are we going to um, have some training sessions? What are we going to do? And how do we do this with people in, you know, I don't know how many, 15 different, 10 different time zones, something like that. And right. how do we, how do we engage, um, you know, late into the evening and early mornings? And how do we do this in a way that builds a sense of community and enables us to work on this kind of stuff? It's a big experiment. Mm. A worthy experiment, I think. I, I, I hope so. I, I mean, it, it, We've been on campus for the last uh, couple weeks at ASU, starting classes again, and it's so different. People are not in their office if they're not teaching. They, you know, they leave um, to to be safe and 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 so on. And the the atmosphere on campus is so different, and it makes me wonder about the need for us to continue these kinds of collaborative engagement exercises because how do you build a, a a culture within an organization if no one's ever together and you don't have the 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 random meetups in getting a cup of coffee in the common room or or sit down for 5 minutes before the before a meeting starts these are these are kind of gone because we just zoom into our meetings now and what is this how do, how do we do this, especially for people that are new to our, our organization? Um, hmm. It's going to be, uh, I think, challenge. And how do we do this for our, our new incoming grad students? How do we make them feel a part of, yeah. of, of something? Um, it's going to be, it's going to be um, mm-hmm. tough. Yeah. Um, so returning to the Resilience Alliance, Mike, so you've been a part of that community for a long time and you've been on, I honestly forget the, the, the formal structure they now have. There's a science board. I know there's a board and I believe you are on it. Yeah. So I'm co-chairing that right now. Right. So, and that's, and that started like last year. Right. Okay. So could you talk to us about, about that and kind of what you're thinking about the resilience Alliance as one of the, the main leaders of it now? Sure. Um, so that organization has been in the throes of revival for an extended period of time now. The, there was a changing of the guard um, a number of years ago. Um, and that organization was incredibly successful and had a, 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 an amazing number of, of very um, top, tier scholars that were actively engaged and working together and, and did a lot of really, I think, revolutionary work and changed uh, the perspectives of a lot of ecology and some of the pioneering work in social ecological systems. And it was, it was very uh, formative. Their, their research was very formative for, for many of us. When that old guard started to uh, retire and, and move on. I think that there was a, a lull in what the group was doing and what was it, what it was for. Um, and I think we're um, starting to make some positive headway um, over the last several months. And I'm, I'm quite optimistic about the future. It's going to be quite a different organization, I think, than it was in some ways. Um, 
both in terms of of its openness. One of the challenges with the RA has always been that it's been a very small and closed group, um, in part to enable a, a lot of that revolutionary work to occur in a safe space. And I think the the new group wants to maintain some some constraints on size to enable us to do things, but but to have a more open kind of spoken uh, hub and spoke structure that enables us to to be more open in other ways. So um, we're having a, the the organization has always had a, a science meeting every eighteen months or so, and we're planning one for this fall. And the hope is that that will. Because it's all going to be virtual, we wanted to try to build up. And again, we're really striving. Our goals right now are really about uh, building a sense of community around this shared scholarship or shared interests. Um, But because this is happening virtually now, we're trying to build with regular interactions leading up to the science meeting later this fall, having different people present. Some of those presenters are, are members of the group. Some are not. Some of the people that are engaging have, um, have been invited um, and are, are not a part of the group, but we wanted them to engage in the, in the dialogue. We're really trying to, um, to build some momentum leading up to the, to the science meeting and then beyond and then okay. and expand the group uh, from there. Um, okay. Two questions. Well, so just to get um, to mention this, the, the co-chair is Gary Peterson. Do I have that right? That's correct. I wanted to mention him too. And he's at, he's at Stockholm. That's or, right. He's at the Stockholm Resilience Center at Stockholm University. Right. And is that still very much an epicenter of a lot of this community and work? It is. There's not a lot of formal members from the SRC involved in the Resilience Alliance now, but there are a lot of people that are engaging in these ideas um, and that are uh, occasional participants or speakers or so on. Um, okay. I, I very much see the the community as much bigger than just the formal membership. Right. Yeah. I mean, so you've been mentioning, you saying like, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And then you said, we're going to expand who's involved. What do you mean by that? Well, so there's formally what we're trying to do right now is we want to formally ex- ex- extend or expand the the membership. What we're trying to do now is, uh, do things um, and to show why it would be beneficial to be a member. Mm-hmm. We're having these this this regular interaction, and and um, these are the types of things that don't you want to be involved in as well. So we're really trying to build this momentum uh, to make it appealing to people. Right. Um, so that's formally and informally trying to do this in a way where we would engage with a broader community and have people come in to, uh, to talk about their work and how it's maybe, um, aligns with, or is, or, or is adjacent to some of the work within the community, you know, Mm -hmm. bring in somebody that looks at resilient engineering and talk about how it's used in that, that field, or somebody that's looking at resilience in psychology and how it's used in that field and resilient cities and disaster resilience. It's, it's quite a, a buzzword clearly, and sometimes people use it in very similar ways to the RA membership. In some ways they don't, but it'd be nice to have some uh, cross fertilization. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. I mean, it's, 
Yeah, again, like some of my fondest professional memories have been associated with the Resilience Alliance. And I've not been very involved in it for, I would say, the last six years. But the idea of getting re-involved and re-engaged with that that community is Mm. quite exciting. And thinking about how you can help, you know, future folks, younger folks get some of the same opportunities that you had. Right. To feel feel that same sense of belonging. And there's a strong group of young scholars, uh, again, which is mm-hmm. which is uh, energizing, I would say. And there's a mm-hmm. big focus right now on education, both in terms of creating some some online educational um, uh, opportunities or, or or technologies that people can access. Uh, you know, if you're a member, then you can access these videos from all of these different experts. But also trying to link up. Um, classes and professors and have guest lectures from other, other uh, members, things like that, that I think that's are, a great uh, idea. It's, it's really, uh, I think it's really cool. And it's, again, this is very different from what the original group did. Um, but um, I think something that's really important to a lot of us. Yeah. Um, okay. I've got about 10 more minutes. We've, uh, talked about a lot of stuff. Um, I guess two things was we could talk a bit about your sabbatical in, in Ecuador or Stefan, if there was other stuff that you wanted to make sure to talk about, or Mike, if there was other stuff that you wanted to make sure to talk about, we could prioritize those things. Well, I did want to hear a little bit about what you're working on going forward in general. And if that is linked to the time that you spent in Ecuador, I know you had some interest in doing things in perhaps the Galapagos. And I don't know if that was a a major idea, minor or, or a nano idea in terms of time investment. But I would be interested to hear what you what you gained from the the time there and what you're thinking about in the next next projects. Sure. So um, this past year, I took my uh, first sabbatical, and we uh, the, uh, the family and I went to Ecuador. We were based in Cuenca, which is the third city of Ecuador up in the Andes, um, a beautiful UNESCO World Heritage uh, City. And um, I was looking at projects very similar to the kind of work that I'd been doing in the past, looking at how groups were uh, collaborating in situations uh, that were often quite conflictual. And there there were a few different projects that kind of emerged uh, through uh, colleagues and 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 connections. So a friend of mine who had been studying at uh, ICTA at the at UAB in Barcelona, um, he was finishing his PhD and we had gotten to know each other through a, through a, a mutual friend. And he was originally from Cuenca and he had moved back um, to become a field biologist in, in the national park right outside of, of Cuenca. And um, I said, this is great. We should look at doing something together. Um, and then I, I moved down uh, to Cuenca. And in the in the period of time between when we talked and when um, I arrived back in Cuenca, um, he said, well, I'm, I'm not the field biologist anymore. I'm now the director of the park. Um, so suddenly we had this wonderful connection and, and Cajas National Park is part of this bigger man and biosphere reserve. And they were facing a lot of the, uh, the challenges that often happen with parks. This is very much a, a uh, 
very much not a paper park. It's quite well run and local community uses it for hiking and, and other kinds of things. But around the periphery, they have a lot of challenges with, with uh, illegal grazing. And so the, the uh, authorities went in and tried to stop the grazing from happening. And in response, there were some fires that were set in the park. And, and so there was a lot of conflict going on. And we talked quite a lot um, about how, how do you deal with these situations and, and what's appropriate and how do you engage with communities? And one of the things that I think is really positive for them at this point is that they're uh, turning a blind eye to some of the grazing, which in the scheme of the broader park is pretty minimal um, in, 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 a, in an attempt to improve the relationships with communities and, and help formalize ways that they can all benefit from, from the protected area. So it's not just a cutting off of, of resources, but that this is a, a way that they can also, also benefit from the park. So that was one of the projects that, um, that I continue to, to work on uh, slowly, slowly as all my work seems to go. And then um, the other, one of my colleagues at ASU had been on sabbatical in the Galapagos um, a, a few years ago and had a had a few projects going there, and through her, uh, we started working on some some ideas there. And one of those was, uh, again, this is very much around collaboration and conflict. And the the um, the Galapagos had had a co management group with fishers and and community members and tourism operators and government officials that had been managing the, the Marine reserve for quite some time. And in some ways had been quite successful um, in the past. And they were um, the uh, president a few years ago, created a new uh, expanded reserve uh, that increased the no take zones uh, substantially and did it again, this top down imposition. And it, it really blew up the co-management group. And so with some other colleagues that are based in the Galapagos, we were interested in exploring how um, how this changed historically, looking back at what was working and how uh, things are different now. And are there ways to revive some of this and, you know, resurrect some of it and see if we can uh, get back to a more collaborative uh, environment in this, in this new, uh, new era. Um, so those are some of the ideas that we're, we were looking at there again around this notion of how do we collaborate to resolve these these differences. Oh, very cool, very nice. Yeah. Michael, what what do you have to wrap up on? I mean, I have one question, but I have to go in five minutes, and it's, it's a kind of a doozy, so I'm not really sure. I'm well, not sure I want to ask it versus just spend the time like in a little denouement. Um, I mean, I don't, so I, I, here's something I struggle with, and this is just going to have to be like the end of round one, and then we'll have a sequel interview because that's starting to be something. <laughs> like, what do we need to know about collaboration that we don't know? What are the big questions about environmental, like collaborative environmental governance? We have all these ideas. Here's something I worry a little bit about. And actually, it was our, I'll, I'll attribute this to our, our good friend, Jackie Bauer, who was, we've also interviewed on this podcast, where she, she was at the interface with academia, but had this really, she's really great to talk to because she had a kind of skepticism, which you can't always afford to have when you're, you're drinking the Kool-Aid yourself. 
And she would say, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the things you all talk about are things when I hear them, I'm like, well, yeah, okay. Like that makes sense to me. And you can always say like, well, f- you know, the, the, the most intuitive kind of response to that is to say, well, you, after the fact, you can always say, well, yeah, but like the initial discovery was hard. That I'd, makes me feel a little better, but I still sometimes struggle with like, how much are we all like, are we moving the needle on, on these really critical questions about particularly collaborative governance versus how much are we reaffirming our own, in, you know, the, the average adult with a moderate amount of emotional intelligence, like how much are we going to surprise that person with the next thing we find? No, I, so I think that's great. I, uh, I often think about uh, my grandparents and farming and am I learning anything that, that, would surprise them. And often I think the answer is no, that this is, is, um, obvious. Although I, there's also, there's also been a, 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 a backlash. I think that too many studies are trying to work really hard at showing that they're counterintuitive. So I think, um, uh, I'm, I'm quite a- aware of that. And I think that the, yeah, that that many of our findings support what would make sense to somebody that actively engages in in this and uh, as a as a practitioner. Um, what we've been trying to do, um, both in this PEX project, comparing cases across a wide variety of of uh, countries and localities, and and uh, you know different levels of economic development and 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 so on, we're really trying to say you know, there are laundry lists and there are heaps of articles that create these laundry lists of these are the things that are really good for uh, collaborative environmental governance. You can start with uh, Ostrom's design principles, um, but there's all kinds of other ones. That, and and some really some really good literature on this. Uh, Derek Armitage and Ryan Plummer and Lisa Schultz and, and a lot of other people uh, have, have created these. And one of the things that we've been trying to do recently is saying, well, how does context mediate on those variables and how do the the various combinations change as you change uh, context? And my, my thinking around this is that there's a typology or we could create it. I would like to create a typology that, um, that differentiates and distinguishes between different types of groups. So if you have one initiative that's bottom up versus one that's top down, how do they different in terms of the things that make those succeed or that enable those to succeed? Or if one is well-funded and another is not, how does that change uh, what is needed to make it successful? Or one has a strong core leadership team and another doesn't. One's been right. around for a long time and one is pretty new. How do all these kinds of things, and, I, and I'm, framing all of those as different contexts, right? How do those change this, this laundry list of success factors? And I think if we make some progress there, I think, uh, and I know we all love our frameworks and typologies, but I think if I could say, you know, to put it in, in everyday language, if I said, if your collaboration is in this group here, where you have strong leadership, but no money, and it's a grassroots initiative, here are five things that I would really focus on to make your group take off. And this group over here that's framed very different or structured very differently. um, You know, it's based, 
it's, it's being built because of a, a lawsuit that was filed against the Forest Service. And they're interested in partnering with local community members or, or resource users. How do these differ? And if, and if I can give you a list of a few things that might be really important to your collaboration, um, I think that's hugely beneficial. And I don't know that the active practitioner um, without a tremendous amount of experience would would be able to identify the difference between those groups and what one might mm. that the other that is less important in another. Anyway, okay. that's that's where my thinking is going now, and what I'd like to be able to do. Um, we'll see if we can get there. Well, that is a terrific answer, Mike. I know we could. I know we could go for a long time yeah, on that. I'm feeling it. Do another round. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, you just buy yourself another interview. Awesome. Well, this, is, this has been a lot of fun. I, you know, earlier you were saying uh, something about how do we uh, get outside of our heads and and do some of uh, do some of this. How do you engage in whether it's uh, running a collaborative or, or teaching or whatever? And I think that um, I, I know that me personally, I'm often uh, stuck with the, that outside observer view that makes it really tough to. Uh, I feel like give a give a strong presentation or engage in a uh, podcast like this because that outsider is is watching too much. And if I, if you can if we can get past that and have a dialogue, which I hope uh, we were able to do today, uh, at least from my end, I felt like we were. Um, that's um, that's good progress. I feel the same in the, in the classroom when mm. when we're just talking instead of me trying to pontificate and uh, worry about my eloquence or whatever. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Finding Sustainability podcast is a pretty small shop, so we don't have a long list of producers to thank, or really any list. We view this as an artisanal project that helps us get back to connecting with folks, something that is surprisingly hard to do, particularly these days. Take care out there.